This podcast contains general health information and shouldn't be relied on as medical advice. Information is current at the time of recording. If you have any health concerns, speak to your doctor. HTF doesn't endorse any statements or opinions made during the podcast. HCF acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Eastern Kulin Nation. We pay respects to their elders past and present. Welcome to the second episode of Menopause Matters, brought to you by HCF, Australia's largest not-for-profit health fund. I'm your host, Alison Braydado. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Farrell, a gynecologist with over 30 years experience. She's also the founder and director of Jean Hales for Women's Health. In 2009, she was awarded a member of the Order of Australia for her contributions to women's health, particularly obstetrics and gynecology. When I was researching for my book, the Jean Hales website was a wealth of information. It's very user-friendly and encouraging for women. And I'm really grateful that we have health centers specifically for women. We're thrilled to have you and your wealth of experience and knowledge shared with us today, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. There's so many questions that we can start off with, but I, I want to sort of go back to somewhat into the perimenopause beginnings of it all. How do I know that I'm perimenopausal? And especially for women that perhaps have the marina or are on the pill, there's no changes in their menstrual cycles. It's a very good question. And the answer is that we have defined the perimenopause really from the menstrual marker. In other words, when periods become irregular, that is considered to be the onset of perimenopause. So when somebody's had a hysterectomy or they've got a marina in situ where they don't have periods or they're on the pill and the period, the menstrual cycle is controlled, you really don't have that marker And there are some women who will have regular periods right up until menopause, the Mm. final period, so they don't have a marker as well. There's no hard and fast rule. It's often age-related. The average age of the final period in Australia is 51. The broad range for having the final period is from about the mini broad range is 48 to 53 and the broad broad range is 45 to 60. Mm. Once a woman gets into her middle 40s, she's probably perimenopausal by virtue of the changes that are going to be going on in her ovaries. And there will be a percentage of women who don't have any changes. They just feel the same. They don't feel any different. Their periods are regular. And then one day they just stop. Yes. The majority of us will have some symptoms that will start. Might be mood changes in some women. It might be getting more premenstrual symptoms. It might be that sometimes before you get a period, you might have hot flushes, but then they stop and then they go away. One of the things we like to know is to have some sort of like a little square of knowledge to know that that's where we fit. Unfortunately, this is the issue with the perimenopause and why it's so tricky. It can be all over the place. And that's hormonally what happens. 
what one woman experiences, another woman will not experience. Mm. I suppose many women would say to me, I just don't feel myself. Yes. I feel up and down. I feel all over the place. I'm not sleeping well. I'm waking up in the middle of the night and I don't know why. I can't cope with things. I don't seem to have the same capacity to do what I normally did a few years ago. I'm feeling slower. I'm feeling more tired. I'm feeling more anxious. And sometimes I'm getting sore breasts or I'm getting migraines or occasionally I'll feel hot. All of those things can happen. It's very hard to be absolutely black and white. Perimenopause is very grey. I found that that mysterious part of it is what often stops women coming forward to get help because my experience is going to be different to somebody else's. When you do go to compare notes, we're not finding the same story. So that can be the challenge. How much does hereditary play a part in it? If my mother went into menopause early, will I go into menopause early? The answer is that there is a familial association between when women have their final period. And if a mother has her final period earlier, so between 40 and 45, we'd say that's early menopause. Before 40, it's considered premature menopause. And there can be a familial association. It's a good idea to know when your mother had her final period, because if it's early... And like so many young women today defer having children until they're later on in their reproductive years, sometimes it can be too late. And it's not necessarily that we have a blood test to say, yes, you're in perimenopause. Is that correct? One of the things that women get fixated on is what are my hormones doing? And they will often come in and say, I want to know what my hormone levels are and where I'm at. Because I've said that perimenopause is a time of changes, that's what the hormones are doing. And one of my senior endocrinology colleagues said it's a time of hormone chaos. Mm, Right. (laughs) So if it's a time of hormone chaos, how are we meant to behave without some chaos as well? Yes, indeed. It's a bit like the reverse of the young adolescent girl. Her cycle winds up in the first two to three years after that first period, or maybe even longer. With us, the cycle is winding down, but it doesn't do it in a regular pattern. As we get closer to that final period, there are more and more cycles where we won't ovulate. But in the perimenopause, there are some women who can ovulate twice in a single cycle. That means that the second ovulation can be during a period. This is not common, but perhaps it explains to my generation, at least, why an elderly member of the family had a baby at 50. Yes, yes, I've heard of that. Thinking they're postmenopausal and suddenly they're pregnant. And it's probably because of it's called a luteal out-of-phase ovulation. Mm. It doesn't happen as often as the anovulatory, where the egg doesn't pop out, but it does mean that contraception is recommended right up until 12 months after the final period if a woman's over 50 and two years 
if a woman is under 50. With everything else that you're going through, the stress to all of a sudden go, hang on a minute, I thought I was <laughs> in menopause, and but no, I'm actually pregnant. I know I actually did a couple of pregnancy tests myself only because the mimicking of the feeling of being pregnant took me by surprise. My breast was so sore, I was bloating, I was moody, and I'm like, could this possibly be? What happens at that time when there's the second ovulation? The levels of hormones are very high. So that's why you can get really sore breasts, those sorts of symptoms as if you were pregnant because the levels are quite high. But then they will fall. There will be some irregularity of periods and then the periods will either be ovulatory or without ovulation, without the egg. The other thing that I think we also have to remember is in terms of the mood symptoms that it's a time of vulnerability. Yeah. So it's a time of vulnerability in terms of our mental state, in terms of our anxiety, depression, irritability, mood swings, all of those things. And if somebody has a tendency to have depression, anxiety, etc., it's going to become more prominent in that phase, in the perimenopause. So that's often why I think we see very occasionally some women developing depression in the perimenopause. But it's also where if somebody has a history of depression or anxiety, it may come out. Right. And if someone has a psychiatric history where they've been perhaps diagnosed with bipolar or schizophrenia or one of those conditions where they've been treated with medications for their various illnesses, this may flare at that time. And there's also some literature that this time of vulnerability is also perhaps where women who've had trauma in their lives, that it may re-emerge, where they may start to get flashbacks in that period. Which I guess in some ways that may be something that could be seen as a really positive thing because it may have been underlying that entire time and now that it's come forward, we can actually look at that, see a health professional and deal with the trauma. And work with it. Liz, if women are starting to notice the changes in their cycles and are also getting symptoms like headaches or hot flushes, what should be the very beginning to navigate their menopause journey? First of all, it's a good idea maybe to chart how you feel, yep. just to have an idea of over two or three months what's happening. And there will be quite a variation. And so charting what your symptoms are like and how much they impact on your quality of life and functioning allows you as the individual to see what's happening, to monitor the periods if they're happening, and to make sure that they're not getting heavier or clotty and all those things, and irregular and too frequent. So all of those things from a gynecological point of view are important because when we don't ovulate, it means that Our ovaries still produce estrogen, but they don't have the balance of progesterone, which is produced by the ovary after ovulation when the egg pops out. And estrogen stimulates our lining cells in our uterus to grow, and progesterone stops it keeping on growing and protects it. And so if we have regular cycles where we're not ovulating, then we've got this estrogen stimulus 
in some women, they can get really heavy periods and prolonged periods. And that might be because the lining is getting too thick. If it gets too thick, it can actually undergo changes. And rarely, it can also turn into a cancer of the uterus. Okay. So charting how you are and then saying, well, what are my triggers? One of the triggers is that your quality of life is going down. You're not managing. Yeah. Another one is that these periods are becoming troublesome. I'm not sleeping properly. Mm. I'm getting really tired. And if you're someone who's got the heavy periods, you also might be becoming iron deficient. There's a clouding between what are symptoms related to the perimenopause and what are iron deficient symptoms because they can be both. You can get brain fog, fatigue, shortness of breath, chest pain, tiredness, can't walk upstairs because you're short of breath or you just haven't got the exercise tolerance. All of those can be actually related to iron deficiency. So once again, it's not black and white. It has to be on an individual basis. What are the symptoms that are bothering you? What are the symptoms that are impacting on your ability to function as you would like to function? Yeah. And are there any red flags like heavy periods that need to be discussed with your GP. It's a bit like being in the surf where it's rough and it's not the rolling waves that keep coming in. There might be a big one and then a little one and one it'll drift you across somewhere else. It's that sort of picture Yes, for many women. And this is the difficulty because it comes from the health professional's point of view. How do you help a woman to navigate this time. And so it's for the woman to tell us what is bothering her and what's getting in the way of her managing her life. Right. Then for her, which is hard to do, it's like thinking about exercise, thinking about nutrition and maximising your health. So making sure you're not getting too overweight, making sure that you're walking, that your bones are okay in the sense of your musculoskeletal system is active. So it's about fitness, really. Mm. All of that helps to modify some of the symptoms, but it's also an insurance policy for the beginning of this next phase of your life. Is part of the journey for women coming to terms with understanding that each experience is unique and one of the keys is to advocate for you both physically and mentally? I think that the importance is about education and it depends on health literacy. Right. So depending on what part of society you live in, it's important to try to get information and information that helps you understand what this phase of your life is about and why you're potentially feeling like that. And you can't advocate for yourself unless you've got some knowledge. So it's having a really trusted doctor, nurse practitioner, health worker, somebody that you actually trust to be able to talk about it. And women will often say, oh, this is a silly question, but, and I think it's important to say that no question is silly mm. if it's troubling you. Right. And so therefore, ask it. Now, in our day and age, it's very tricky for women to get conversations with their GPs because most of the conversations are very short consultations 
and GPs are under the pump. So I think it's important to try and book a long consultation with a GP when you go. And if she can, write out her story. Have notes. I know a lot of doctors go when a woman says, oh, just let me pull out my list of questions. They go, oh, dear, what's this? But I think it's the best thing because the woman has thought about what she's feeling. She's put down on paper the things that are worrying her and she's not going to be caught off guard trying to remember them right. without putting them down on paper. <laughs> yes, with the brain fog in place too. So <laughs> Absolutely. And I am a firm believer in health professionals writing out a plan Okay. Or writing a plan on the notes and the patient taking a screenshot of them so that when they go away, they know what they've been recommended to do. Absolutely. I love that. To me, that's a great beginning step. You've got your list. And I think writing down, as you say, writing down everything because things like, I didn't know dry eyes was a part of possible the menopause journey. Someone was saying her sense of smell changed, which I thought that was an interesting one as well. But to be able to write it all down so you can know what's a health issue and what's a menopause issue. They're all issues at the time of the menopause, if I put it that way. Yeah. And it's like some people will say, you know, what's menopause and what's health? And I would say that, well, it's all part of you. Yeah. And so it's not like your ovaries are separated from your brain or whatever, or from different parts of your body. They all function together. Yeah. And I think that's the way we should be looking at how women function. How important do you feel it would be to have your partner or anyone who's living with you come to those appointments so they can also hear the plan and have a bit of an understanding around it? That's an individual thing. It's like having an advocate there to help you understand. If it's a male partner, I think that's really very important because they may not have a good touch or understanding or knowledge of what this really means to the woman and where she's at. When it comes to women asking, am I in menopause? We can understand... Well, I mean, even perimenopause, I know, can be that chaotic time, as you say, roller coaster. So specifically, menopause, this is meant to just be a year in menopause, but then some women say, I didn't have a period for a year, and then I had a period after that. How do we know exactly to say, I am officially in menopause? It's not you're officially in menopause, because menopause is the last period. Are you officially in postmenopause? Because 12 months after that final period, your postmenopausal, that is different from how long am I going to have symptoms for. Right. So there's a sense that if a woman has symptoms, she's in menopause. Yeah. Whereas, in fact, she's postmenopausal if she's more than 12 months after that final period, but she's having symptoms. And symptoms vary. If we look at some of the literature, it says that symptoms can last eight years, but that doesn't mean to say that they're necessarily bothersome. About one in five women will have symptoms that are very troubling. Most of us will have some symptoms that either annoy us or we accept it, 
but about one in five women will have symptoms that really impact on their ability to function. And they will be those women who may have to retire from work Mm. because they haven't had treatment or the treatment hasn't been appropriate. One of the other things, if we're talking about what can women do for themselves, so we always talk about layering your clothes. So having layers, having a hand fan, or you can actually get fans that sit on the top of your mobile Mm. or a little battery fan that you can have in your handbag. Right. And then also making sure a water spray, a facial spray, that can help. Having one of those, a little wet towel that's soaked in quite cold water and always having cold water if possible with you. So they're little tricks that can help women just to try and manage their symptoms. I remember one patient had a fan that was directly in front of her steering wheel so she could just flick it on when she got a hot flush. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Can you talk us through what actually is HRT and how it works? So HRT is, stands for Hormone Replacement Therapy, which has now been superseded to MHT, mm. which is Menopause Hormone Therapy. If we look at what causes hot flushes and sweats around the time of menopause, it's because our hormones fall, because our ovaries have wound down and stopped functioning. And so the ovaries no longer produce adequate amount of estrogens, So there are different biological estrogens. And because there are no eggs left, there's no ovulation, so there's no progesterone. The lack of estrogen causes, through a very complex mechanism in our brains that is just starting to be unraveled scientifically as to why it happens and how it causes the flushing and the sweating. So it's lack of estrogen. I've talked to you about the fact that estrogen stimulates the lining of the uterus of our womb, as it's colloquially called, to thicken and that progesterone protects against that thickening and stops it happening. Mm. So the two hormones we prescribe in women who haven't had their uterus removed, that is a hysterectomy, is that the estrogen is for the hot flushes and the sweats and for the other menopause symptoms. And the progesterone is to protect the lining of the uterus against that growth stimulated by estrogen. And so that's why we use the estrogen to stop the flushing and the sweating, the aches and pains, the dry vagina, recurrent urine infections, incontinence, it can help all of those. And the progesterone is primarily to protect the lining of the uterus against any thickening and any development of abnormal change in those cells. Right. And that means that the dose of estrogen that's prescribed has to have a balance of an adequate dose of the progesterone. Mm. It has to be balanced so that it doesn't allow the lining to thicken. And what I haven't mentioned is that if a woman has had her uterus removed, a hysterectomy, she doesn't need progesterone because the uterus is not there and so the lining doesn't need to be protected. So these women can have oestrogen alone. Mm. So they can have just oestrogen therapy and don't need the progesterone. You have been working in this field for 
so many years and have had so much experience. So you must have heard so many times women's concerns about HRT. Can you just explain where we are now with HRT and how important it is for women to know how safe it is? I'll give you a slightly historical perspective. So quite some years ago, there were a lot of publications from the Nurses' Health Study in the USA. And that was a community study of nurses looking at them from perimenopause through postmenopause. And they looked at what women went on to hormone therapies and whether they had estrogen and progesterone. So this study went on for many, many years. And it said that there was no increase in the risk of breast cancer under about five years of usage. And we were talking about very small numbers. The risk with oestrogen alone was less and it was far further down the track, almost to 15 to 20 years in those studies. So the Women's Health Initiative study was started also in the USA using oral oestrogen and progestogens a synthetic progesterone, not progesterone itself. And that was looking at chronic disease, but it was a study that had three groups, women 50 to 59, 60 to 69, 70 to 79. And the average age in the study was 63. It was said that they were a normal American population, So you can imagine a third of them were smokers, a third of them had high blood pressure. They were basically overweight, not what you would actually consider to be a normal Australian population, nor a normal European population. And the primary endpoint, the first thing that they were going to look at was breast cancer risk, but also heart disease, thrombosis, so clots in the legs, DVT or clots in the lungs. And it was stopped after five years because there was a non-statistical increase in the risk of breast cancer. And the media were given prior knowledge before it actually reached the medical profession. And you can imagine that this was a great news story. Yes, Look at these terrible female hormones causing breast cancer. Right. I did an interview on the radio with one of the male radio commentators who said, I'd never allow my wife to take that stuff. And I kept saying, we're talking about a very, very, very small increase in risk. This is really a safe medication for women in those years when women become menopausal. Mm. Ten years later, he asked me to come back. And the first thing he said to me, I was wrong, you were right. It's about quality of life and it's about weighing up those risks and benefits. And for those women in the 20% who have menopause symptoms that are so impacting on their quality of life and they don't have any reasons that they can't take it, I believe they should be able to take it and to take it for as long as they need to, weighing up the risks and the benefits as the years go by. HRT has had a stigma around it, thanks to some bad press, as you explained for us. What would you say to women who are hesitant around using HRT because of that bad press? 
The problem is that people have long memories and they're not quite sure that they can trust what's said to them at times. But there have been a number of studies since and there has been quite a lot of data saying that the women who are at the menopause age, that is those women between 50 and 60, the risks in fact were very small, but they were originally published as one block. Right. And it took the researchers quite some time before they were prepared to come out and show that the risks in those women between 50 and 60, which is when most women become menopausal when their periods stop, the risks were very, very small. Not mm. zero, but very small. Yeah. And so I would say to women that you have to weigh up quality of life versus having the small risks of being on hormone therapy. Mm. We try to use transdermal most of the time, but some women prefer oral therapies. And we don't know how long a woman's going to be on it. So we don't say you have to stop after five years or you have to stop after seven years. Yeah. You stop when you feel your symptoms are not impacting on your quality of life. As you know, this time in a woman's life, this chapter, it's not exactly linear <laughs> as much as we would love it to be. And we do need to empower women. And of, as you've mentioned, you know, knowledge is power. How else can we embrace this time. So it becomes something that I would love to be able to say, look forward to, but at least walk through it with our strength and our dignity and know that we are coming out the other side of this. Hopefully for many women, it can herald a time in life in which women can actually be more self-centred, mm -hmm. self-directed and more aware of who they are and what they want in life for this next phase. Now, obviously, that's idealistic at one sense because it depends on your socio-cultural group, depends on your language, depends on your education, depends on your finances, depends on what your social relationships are in life. But overall, I think it's a time in which women should say to themselves, this is the beginning of my time in my life and I'm going to try and be as healthy and as fit as possible so that I can go and do some of the things or try to do some of the things I've always said, if only I could do this. Yes. I went to my very first all-women's retreat last year in Bali and it was really interesting because there was a fairly big age range of women and some were in their 60s, some were as young as in their late 20s. Everyone was there for the same reason and it was burnout. And a lot of the women who were my age specifically were there because they finally realized they'd not given themselves the time that they really needed. And that was the reason I was there. I had never done anything like that before. And I was terrified to do it in the beginning, which was, seems crazy. But once I was there and noting how I felt, I felt like I'd really given myself a gift in that. And I think that is something, a message that I would love every woman to have going into this, that if you can't start beforehand giving yourself the time you need, this is really the time to knuckle down and give yourself the me time and the self-care that we all really deserve. When we get to the menopause, we are a bit burnt out, but we're also a bit tired of always deferring to everybody else. So I think we need to practice 
blob time. Absolutely, because having time off doesn't mean, okay, I've got a day off, so now I can go do this and I can do that and I'll run the errands and I'll pick up that and I'll make sure that that's taken care of and I'll take the child to the dentist. That is not taking time off. As you say, I love that blob time is just doing nothing. and <laughs> But it's actually reparative. It's yes. repairing you. Yes. It's repairing part of you that needs that nurturing. Absolutely. And as far as mental health, I mean, I feel like that is the blob time is, as you say, imperative to repair and out with our well-being. How important is peer groups and your tribe as well? Well, if we look at how women manage best they manage best in a collective, in a sense, that they've got themselves as a single person, then they've got whoever is their immediate family network and then their social network. And it's very important for women to have friends, close friends, friends who are family, friends to go for a coffee with or go shopping with or go for a walk with, go play, if they play golf or tennis or go to a gym or go to the community health centre for a class. Because as you say, it can be such an isolating time that to have other women around you is important. You have been working in women's health for such a long time. What are the biggest changes that you've seen in the attitudes towards menopause, both in the treatment and the discussion around it? I think health and wellness overall has improved with time. There's a greater emphasis on exercise and fitness and making sure that you're monitoring your general health, but also your breast health, having cervical screens, the old pap smears. And I think emphasising that has been good. The Women's Health Initiative study has been the most negative, negative aspect of menopause management since 2002. And it's only now starting to move back towards a more middle ground where we're looking at what is fact and reality and not hype and uh, exaggeration. Right. And I think that that was the greatest negative downturn in women being able to feel that they could ask for help and not feel guilty about being on hormone therapy. It's not anybody else's business as to what an individual woman does. Yes. It's her choice and she should be able to make that choice without being made to feel guilty by people who don't know what they're talking about or that their knowledge is past. It's old knowledge. It's not the latest knowledge. Right. The most important thing is what we're doing today, and that is that we're talking about it. Yeah. And we're talking about it out there in a public place. I mean, it's been part of Jean Hale's philosophy to educate and to provide educational material. And it's about knowledge and empowerment by knowledge. And it's about providing literature that is understandable to all parts of the community. I know that when I first started with my symptoms, there was a lot of Dr. Google around and that was probably the worst place to be looking (laughs) 
at how to deal with menopause symptoms because Dr. Google can send you in all sorts of crazy places. So that's why we have people like you and the Gene Hale Center. And I just wanted to thank you so much for your time, but mostly for all of the work that you do for women and the struggles that we may go through and all of your knowledge and care that you've given to, I'm sure, many, many women. And thank you so much for your time today. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Menopause Matters. In the next episode, I'll be chatting with sex and relationship therapist Jacqueline Hellier on how menopause can affect your relationships and sex life and what you can do about it. HCF believes in being a trusted health partner for members, delivering practical tips and real-life stories to help take charge of your health and well-being. For more helpful information about menopause and all things women's health, head to hcf.com.au forward slash women's dash health. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review Menopause Matters. It helps more women get access to great menopause insights. I'm Alison Bray-Datto and thanks so much for listening. If you're struggling and want to speak to someone now, call Lifeline on 13 11 14.